Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. You'll notice that I did not say all new episode there, and that's because, well, this isn't quite new. It's a rebroadcast of the conversation that Connor and I had about the poem Additional Notes on Tea by Fatty Judah. Now, Judah is a Palestinian-American poet, and we talk about that and a whole lot more in this episode, but I wanted to quickly hop in and say that if you're interested in hearing more poems by Palestinian poets and poets who are part of the Palestinian diaspora, you can check out episode 132 of Close Talking called Poetry and Palestine. There is also a whole edition of the Unboxed Newsletter, which is the newsletter of Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, which puts out Close Talking. Um, there's a whole edition of that newsletter called Poetry in Palestine with writing from co-host Connor McNamara Stratton. And it's also got a bunch of links to other poets and to resources to learn more about the history of Palestine itself. There's a link to that edition of Unboxed in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to the Unboxed newsletter at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. On with the show. Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. <laughs> that was good. Um, and it is a wonderful, terrifying February day. There's a lot going on, but this is a moment to not think about it, because on Close Talking, all that happens is we read a poem, we talk about the poem, and we read it again. And we got yet another wonderful poem for you today um, by the excellent poet Fadi Judah. The poem is Additional Notes on Tea. Uh, and Judah is a marvelous poet. Um, he won the Yale Younger Prize in 2007, um, and so his debut book came out in 2008, and he has a few other collections of poetry, um, most recently 
Footnotes in the Order of Disappearance, uh, which came out in 2018, I believe. Um, and he's a very interesting guy as well. Um, he's Palestinian-American. I think he was born in Texas, but he was raised in uh, Libya and Saudi Arabia. Um, and he also has the distinction of being a literal doctor and did Doctors Without Borders um, in uh, Zambia and Sudan. Um, the first of which comes up in this poem. But I'm just like, it's hard enough being a doctor. It's hard enough being a poet. But it's like, usually the doctors are like, all right, we'll leave the poetry to you. And the poetry's like, I'm not touching anything that might be dangerous except for my pen. But this guy, he's doing it both. And I've never been, uh, you know, on the operating table with Judah, but his poetry, I can tell you, is very good. If if the doctoring is anything like the poetry, it's exceptional. Yes. Yes. Um, well, without further ado, um, this is Additional Notes on Tea by Fadi Judah. In Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs. They signal mourning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink raven tea. On the operating table in Sulwazy, a doctor watches a woman die. Tea while the anesthetic wears off, while the blade is waiting, tea. The doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping outside heaven in a tent. God is a refugee dreaming of tea. Once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around. Land was jealous, so it turned into desert and gave no one wood for ships. And when ships became steel, land turned into ice. And when everything melted, everything tasted like tea. Once upon a time, there was a tea party in Boston. Tea like history, is a non sequitur. I prefer it black. The Chinese drink it green. The doctor is in. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, indeedly do. Yeah, I guess usually at the beginning we do a little play-by-play, -play, um, which will probably be especially helpful for this poem because there's a bit of jumping around. Um, the way I understand this poem is there's, so there's like, uh, I think there's seven stanzas. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Seven three-line stanzas. Yeah. So there's seven three-line stanzas and basically the first six, there's like one little story or vignette that happens per every two stanzas. Um, so in the first, like, 
two stanzas. There's this basically uh, a man has died on the deathbed. Um, like there's a in Cairo, um, there's a boy who's drinking tea, and then there's women who are kind of mourning the loss of this man uh, on the deathbed. Then we move to Solwezi, which is a city in uh, Zambia, um, where there's a doctor who sort of has unsuccessfully tried to save a woman on the operating table. Um, and then there's kind of this bit about, like, after... Like watching the woman die, there's this, you know, the doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping and it kind of gets a little abstract there. Um, and that's kind of like story number two. And then story number three, which are like the fifth and sixth stanzas, gets into like parable territory. We've got the once upon a times coming in and there's like ocean is a character, land is a character, and land is jealous of ocean because ocean's getting with sea, and then tea's all around there doing stuff. Um, and then basically, then the last stanza is just like, uh, as it's all self-described, <laughs> a non uh, non sequitur, uh, and just kind of like doing its own thing. Um, so that's kind of like what's happening on a sort of basic level of the poem i think yeah i agree uh, it's not a real it's definitely not a linear progression of any sort but there is a a definite logic that can be pulled out in terms of organization it's not totally like a, a more random impressionistic view of tea or something like there's a there's some structure underlining everything yeah no that's absolutely right um yeah and of course i mean it almost goes without saying but with the title additional notes on T, um, which kind of helps, I think, the poem get away with it sort of jumping around because it's like, here's some more thoughts about T. Here's one, here's another. Um, T is in every stanza, um, and it's kind of like, you know, the first basic link sort of between everything in... Uh, you know, the poem. So, like, even when you're jumping from Cairo to Sowazi, like, T is still there as a kind of, like, grounding tool. Um, and, of course, you know, like, as you were saying, it's not totally, like, disjointed. You know, in the, in the first two stanzas, like, there's a death of some kind. Um, and in the third and fourth stanza there is another death um it's of a different it's a different death and it's it's less about the sort of family like community or surrounding the death and more just like the operating table um and then like the fifth and sixth are kind of they are kind of doing its own thing but it's also like a sort of origin story of tea in a kind of way. And there is a uh, sense of not necessarily explicit death, but you do get this. So it turned uh, land was jealous. So it turned into desert and gave no one wood for ships. That feels a little bit like death for the land 
going from a forest to a desert, that's a pretty big change from, you know, verdant abundance to desolation. And then when the ships became steel, land turned to ice. Famously, the Arctic is also technically a desert because it actually gets so little precipitation that even though it's covered in ice and frozen water, because so little precipitation falls, it counts as a desert. So it feels to me like there's echoes of death in those lines or of dying or of a certain kind of desolation or maybe, to be most precise, an absence of life as opposed to death itself. I think that's a really good point. There's also this sense of, uh, and there's there's a lot more to it, but just as another link maybe, you know, the the sort of the doctor story ends with, this great line, God is a refugee dreaming of tea. Um, and we have this kind of sense of like, and then God's like outside of heaven, sleeping in a tent. Um, we have this sense of like displacement and then that gets us thinking about land, um, which I feel like then kind of moves into when the, the parable stories like about ocean and land I don't know. It's not like a direct link, but, you know, the idea of land and geography is such an important part about, of, like, refugee, like, uh, both life, but also, like, the very idea of what it means to be a refugee in terms of, like, being displaced from one's land and stuff. I don't know. I, it's, that's maybe more of a tenuous link, but... Um... Well, I think there's a lot of that going on there because the definition of being a refugee is, in many ways, it's not built on nationhood, but the reason that refugee status exists and the reason that the status of refugees becomes so complicated is because you're fleeing a discrete bordered country and trying to enter other discrete bordered countries. And so when you take the theoretically omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God and turn that entity into a refugee, you're saying that this borderless figure that, you know, theoretically has dominion over the world has refugee status. And so you're rubbing up against those two ideas, which I think is, a, aside from just being sort of a captivating image and a captivating line, when you drill down into a little bit of what's actually going on there, like, you're starting to get some very interesting contradictions. Yeah. No, it's really right. Yeah, and just like thinking of heaven being the homeland for God in the kind of way that, that God has sort of been forced to leave um, is, is just really interesting. But then also interesting in the context that it... it follows the woman who's just passed away and then that's like what gets you thinking about heaven in the first place and this like kind of I don't even know but it's like the you know if you pass away and then you go to heaven but then like God's not in heaven God's outside heaven so you're like I don't know the God is one time displaced, but then I can imagine the woman is being two times displaced. Um, if they're not even, were not already <laughs> a refugee, which they may have been, um, in which case it'd be three times displaced. So, 
that's sort of just a bit of a, a mind warp. Totally. Um, <laughs> I, I really kind of got hooked on those lines. I'm glad that you brought them up as one of the places to start because it was something that definitely captivated me going through this poem because it's a it's something that happens sometimes in art and it made me flash on several examples actually all from the same person um, but it's something that I find really interesting when you sort of take God and like personify or put limitations or real humanity onto God is something I find really fascinating um, and Tom Waits actually does this kind of a lot in his songs which I find very interesting. I think part of why I was in mind of him is because uh, the first part where uh, the doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping outside heaven in a tent. Tom Waits has this song called Make It Rain, where it's all about, like, I'm close to heaven, crushed at the gate. Uh, like, he's, like, right outside heaven the whole time. It's a whole... I'm close to heaven, crushed at the gate, sharpen their knives. It's not about God being outside heaven, but just like the notion of being directly outside is there. And then he also has another song called God's Away on Business. And the one that I mostly thought of is a song that he wrote. It's like this epic length song that was released on his triple album, uh, Orphans, Ballers, Brawlers and Bastards. And it is this like epic length song called Road to Peace, which was what George W. Bush was referring to his plan for the Middle East as. It was like the roadmap to peace. And so it's this sort of recitation of real events about suicide bombings and stuff. But the refrain that comes in at one point is maybe God himself is lost and needs help along the road to peace. Maybe God himself he needs all of our help. Maybe God himself is lost and needs help. He's out upon the uh, which is another similar, I feel like, deploying idea of, you know, part of what's being contested in the violence that happens between Israel and Palestine, which is what the song is about, um, is this contested notion of God and specific human ideas of what the divine entity of God might be. But it also put me in mind of, like, a refugee God, either refugee from heaven or... Uh, in some other capacity, but just realizing that there's there's an artist out there who does this kind of thing a lot was sort of interesting to be thinking about, and it is legitimately something that's always just like really fascinated me as a move in poems and in songs to to really bring that kind of idea or to to use what I think is a pretty generally accepted idea of a of an omniscient god and to really play with it that way yeah oh i really like that a lot um yeah no it's that's really interesting and it's also it's like i feel like the line god is a refugee dreaming of tea in a many poems it would be like that's like the point of the poem almost but like there's so much happening in the poem that it's kind of this moment that happens and then it goes um, and also the fact that God is dreaming of tea, like, it's very interesting. And it kind of puts, because the question I have, you know, not that there's going to be, I think this is a poem that's, not, you know, it doesn't, because of its sort of associativeness and 
jumping aroundness and non sequitur vibes, it's not going to have like a coherent like message per se. But it is the case that T is like the you know the obvious central thing that's playing different roles here and there that may not like add up to like T equals this, <laughs> but the fact that T is sort of comforting for this refugee god and is kind of like, um, I mean, almost heaven in a way, or like it's the, the thing that God is like wants but doesn't have being, being in the tent outside of heaven. Um, I think is really interesting. Um, and that's kind of like what, what sort of I was thinking about a lot is like in all of these scenes we have T, um, and in some ways it's such a, it's a thing that I love in poems that poems can do. Cause it's something I think about like in my own life, just like how there's certain things that are just like there always in like every kind of situation. Um, like, I don't know. It's like, there's, <laughs> I don't know, like every place, uh, I don't know, wherever, you know, anybody is like people are wearing pants or like every building has a toilet in it and like even a funeral building or like, you know, a chapel or, uh, like a museum or a subway station or whatever. Um, and, you know, these like objects are kind of just like indifferent and everywhere to like the things that were like going through. But like a lot of times poems and I think us is we put a lot of meaning like onto objects and we like give them we sort of load them up with meaning um like as an example we you know we recently talked about the Sharon Olds poem um armor where uh she's with her son in like this museum uh and they're looking at armor and like she's like kind of horrified that her son is like obsessed with all this violent you know stuff and it basically in that poem the armor sort of acquires like the symbolic complications of masculinity and stuff um and it, it provides like this opportunity for like the speaker but also Sharon Olds to like you know uh become like you know reflected on that or whatever um, and this is kind of a, a bit of a ramble, but I feel like that's a very common thing that poems do really well. Um, but that of course also like lots of, um, objects are incredibly important, you know, just in, in many kinds of art and stuff. Um, but you can also think of like kids and adults who have like, stuffed animals or or totems of some kind that like um 
you know, if someone passes away, like, you know, you have a, like, you know, a piece of clothing from them or like a letter that they wrote and it, these things can sort of like stand in for other things. I've made the point. <laughs> um, but what's different about this poem, I think, is like it kind of takes that sort of conceit, but it like kind of pushes it to a place where you can't keep using T in the same way, I guess, if that makes sense. So like if it was only the poem, if the poem was only like the one about God as a refugee dreaming of T, then I could be like T is like this T is home or T is this comforting thing or whatever. Um, or if like, you know, um, like it's just the scene where the doctor is drinking tea while like the anesthetic is wearing off, which is like very intense um, of, of, you know, having just watched a woman die. Um, tea is like, almost either it's like the only comfort against this kind of incredibly dark moment or it's this sort of eerie like what is T doing here in this picture uh, T has no place in this kind of like really sad state um, and you know and then like in the end, you know, we have this, like, once upon a time there was a tea party in Boston. If it was just that, then it's like, okay, tea, tea is bourgeois revolution democracy or whatever. <laughs> or something, you know. Um, but because they're all there, um, and because, like, especially because we end with, like, tea, like history, is a non sequitur, I prefer it black, the Chinese drink it green, which is like the most banal ending, like deliberately like, I like this tea, other people like that tea, Diff people have different preferences. It's not like the big ooh and ah, you know, ending that you might expect. Um, but I think it like, it challenges I guess I don't know to what end right now, but it, the T and all of these sort of paradoxical and contradictory and like emotionally fraught in different ways situations sort of like challenges our ability to like assign a kind of, a specific set kind of meaning to the T. Uh, even though we're still trying to do it all the time because we know it's like the thing of the poem, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And that's very interesting because I sort of did ascribe something to the T. Um, and I totally agree with how you've broken it down and that the T does not correspond to any concrete thing and that the poem is very conscientious about kind of every time you think you have a handle on, oh, T is comfort or T is home or T is solace or whatever, it's sort of switches gears on you 
But I kept thinking back to, and partially this is because of how the poem does wrap up, where it gets into this once upon a time section, those sort of those last three stanzas, even though you're right that the final stanza is offset from the previous two a little bit thematically, because it gives a, a new once upon a time. Um, but starting to talk about tea as history and tea's history of being carried around the world, it sort of reflects back into the beginning of the poem where you start in Cairo and then you move to Zambia, which is where Solwezi is. Um, and those are both in Africa, but they're pretty far apart from each other. And then you sort of switch into this idea of being a refugee, which is, uh, you know, travel based to put it mildly, but like that's displacement and movement throughout the world, which is your segue into the section that's about, you know, once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around, which sounds great. It's a great sounding line. Uh, <laughs> like the rhythm of it, it just flows so nicely. But like that then puts me in mind of the role that tea played as one of the first major globally traded commodities. Uh, along with like spices and silks and salt, which I guess is technically lumped in with spices usually, probably. I don't know, but dyes. Like it was one of the sort of elemental pieces that got picked up, passed around, and especially during the age of, you know, the quote unquote age of exploration or age of colonialism, it was one of the major colonial products and built what were at those time like the big monopolistic trading companies were partially built on their sort of getting tea and passing it all around and so for me a little bit the ubiquity of the way that tea moves through this poem and some of its geographical movement in the beginning part which isn't extreme but then particularly this later part where it's a little more conceptual about how it's talking about movement put me in mind of those kind of nascent elements of globalization that we now see in you know, the global coffee house chains, which also serve tea. But the fact that tea is an important part of cultures literally all over the world. And it serves different purposes, it's treated differently. But from tea ceremonies in Japan, to having tea with your friends, to high tea in England, to, you know, cultural practices around tea drinking in the Middle East, like it is something that the human race has kind of adopted as part of the way that it exists all around the world. And I think some of the diversity in the poem of the ways people are thinking and talking about tea in the beginning part, and then the way it's historically contextualized towards the end, had me not literally ascribing anything to tea itself, but I was finding myself thinking more and more about the way that this kind of way of looking at tea is like here's kind of some scattered thoughts and notions is that like yeah tea shows up in a bunch of different emotional situations it shows up in a bunch of different geographical locations it is this marker of a globalized globally connected world yeah and i i also was was starting to think of i'm glad you brought that up because i was like yeah it was making me think of colonialism as well um i mean partly when you get to refugee you start thinking about like those kinds of global power dynamics and histories um and and but yeah you're it's you're absolutely right about the tease and also yeah like tease role in 
like, you know, motivating colonialism almost, I guess, uh, as the one of the main products or whatever um, that they wanted. Um, and yeah, and it's it's interesting too in that way where like thinking about history and then you kind of like get at the end this once upon a time there was a tea party in Boston and um, this might be this is I think reading way to something into it but then it started making me think about like history like is full of beginnings, I suppose. Um, like when you think about the the kind of that like sixteen nineteen project that the New York Times recently did, that was about you know like the first um, Africans who were taken to uh, the not the Americas but where the U.S. is. Um, and how, you know, that, that project, which is obviously, I think, doing a, uh, doing a lot of really important stuff, but is, is, is trying to say, okay, we, we as U.S. citizens or whatever have marked our beginning at 1776, but really we should be marking this beginning at 1619 because that's when, um, you know, like... African people and slavery sort of began here um, in a real way and that that's actually the foundation of what this nation is. Um, and then of course there, I think there has been some pushback against that, even that idea from like, uh, you know, native people and like indigenous people here who are like, okay, 1619 is not really the beginning because we've been here for like literally forever. Um, and anyway, which is all just to say it's, it's interesting because then to end on this, like there was a tea party in Boston, the Boston tea party being one of the like symbolic events that was the beginning of, this revolutionary thing, um, and that coming after both the whole poem, but then also this sort of like parable origin story, it kind of like is a foil to, it kind of undermines the myth of the Boston Tea Party in some kind of way, uh, where like tea has already had this incredibly complicated history um, you know, through colonization and all these kinds of things. Um, Let's also and, not forget that a big part of the Boston Tea Party story is a bunch of people dressing up in red face to go, like, commit a crime. Yes. Which that, is another whole element of it that I feel like is taught in school but is not in any way usually interrogated hopefully it is now but it's just sort of like a bunch of settlers dressed up as indians and went and dumped tea in the harbor it's like wait back up stop yeah what yeah <laughs> yes oh my god horrifying um 
Wow. Um, anyway, which makes me think of, like, then that line that comes after T-like history is a non sequitur, like, the idea of the non sequitur being just, like, they're not being, rather than the idea of history being a string of causally related events that have sort of, and then also like that have an origin that are leading to some kind of end, like it's always, you know, like, well, all of these factors led up to the revolution, or all of these factors like led up to World War II or something, and it had to happen. It's often, I feel like, how the narratives are constructed. Um, that the non sequitur is is like just like well this happened and then that happened and it's pretty different but like that's how it goes <laughs> um which which both is like kind of uh which the poem kind of enacts beautifully by sort of like putting all of these kind of non sequitur events together um but then is also kind of like challenging like how I don't know because it's just very complicated but then it's like when when you think about refugees as you were saying that the important like the way a refugee can become a refugee is when there are these artificially constructed borders of a nation and to get a nation then you have then like the history of a nation is like so I don't know it feels like very important for it to like work I guess I mean, like, there's also be... like an actual international process you have to go through to become officially designated as a refugee that's like a multi-step process this was one of the whole things when Trump was being shitty about letting refugees into the country, which he continues to be, is that it's this vague idea that there's some danger to doing it. But in fact, to become a refugee, you have to go through this multi-step process to actually achieve the status that would then make you eligible to be taken in by countries that are accepting refugees. So mm. there's this, I think on one level, there's the colloquial way that the term refugee is used, but also it is a literal... Like, it's a whole other layer of international bureaucracy that goes on. Yeah, right. No, yeah, I mean, the process, yeah. I was, um, yeah, reading about, like, Ilhan Omar's background, and it's just, like, the process of, of the, the years that people spend waiting in the camps is, like, partly just because of the insane, rigorous, elaborate process that it takes to process, quote-unquote, um, a refugee and admit them somewhere or whatever. Which um, is also built around this you know, notion that to then cross another country's borders, you have to meet some particular threshold. So it's not just that you've been driven out of your own and put into this weird stateless existence, but then you have to pass all of these different requirements and be passed through this system just to get into another country which again is more like border crossing and border significance yeah it just and interesting too that the last part of the parable 
like and when everything melted everything tasted like tea which is kind of like the exact opposite of like there's no borders there's no distinctions there's no like everything is everything is tea kind of like it's all melted and as one um and i feel like that also contrasts with just different you know like the beginning it's so interesting like this first stanza in Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Like, the first line is is weird because there's no, like, verb, which is, like, I thought I had, like, misread it at first. Um, Me too. But there's, like, that. It's this strange, like, putting these two people in position in relation to one another and like kind of like like dis separating them i guess and then this like the view is angular like a fracture like fracture gets at some kind of like you know you can think about breaking bones but like angular like a fracture seems like in opposition to the idea of the when everything melted everything tasted like tea in a in i guess a kind of way where like you have all these sharp angles and these breaks and these divisions um in this first stanza a lesser poet would maybe like make the leap to borders like there in that stanza because i don't because that's kind of where I'm jumping, but I don't think it's, like, that overdone, I guess, or that, like, explicit. But that first stanza sets you up for um, – and then, I don't know, there's, like, they, the, the second stanza, surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs, they signal mourning with a scream. That sentence is, like, so haunting and also very strange in that one could write they scream like and we would get that they're in mourning because we know that it's a deathbed um and it's like a very distanced sentence like they signal mourning with a scream um the scream which often would be like the most visceral and the first thing is like the last thing mentioned um and that what's being done is signaling something um which i don't i don't know quite what to make of that but um i don't know anyway it just was it just was like making me think about the 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 movement of the beginning and like where it ends up is 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 both different in terms of like what's happening but also like the way things are described and like the the kinds of words that are used it is really interesting because it's noticeably different than kind of the whole rest of the poem yeah pretty much those first two stanzas there's just a lot it's just harsher language i think um yeah both the angular like a fracture and like screaming mourners is so much more uh like viscerally dramatic than anything else that's described i mean you have this really intense scene in the next stanzas of you know watching a woman die and the anesthetic and god which is really heavy stuff but it's not described in the same kind of 
I don't know. The closest it comes, I think, is when um, while the blade is waiting to you just because it's a blade. I feel like that's the most intense other image. But even then, it's not the same kind of human action as they signal morning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink Raven tea. Like the the kinds of human movement that are going on in that first in well really in the second stanza but what's being described in those first two stanzas is you're so right it's just on another order of like disjunction and excitement and intensity than than what's going on in the rest of the poem just in terms of how the language is bringing you the scene um even if the other scenes are still intense you know no and you are you are right um it is so much more active and harsh in that beginning. Um, and just like the verbs in the third stanza just kind of make the point again, you know, like a doctor watches a woman die, the anesthetic wears off, the blade is waiting. So even though we have this like scene, the way that the scene is verbed, um, it's all pretty, like, passive, like, watching, wearing off, and waiting. Um, whereas, you know, as you noted, like, the men are running up the stairs, and they're signaling morning with a scream. Um, yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. Any other thoughts? Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. All right. This is Additional Notes on Tea by Fadi Judah. In Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs. They signal mourning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink raven tea. On the operating table in Sulwazi, a doctor watches a woman die. Tea while the anesthetic wears off, while the blade is waiting, tea. The doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping outside heaven in a tent. God is a refugee dreaming of tea. Once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around. Land was jealous, so it turned into a desert and gave no one wood for ships. And when ships became steel, land turned into ice. And when everything melted, everything tasted like tea. Once upon a time, there was a tea party in Boston. Tea, like history, is a non sequitur. I prefer it black. The Chinese drink it green. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem 
or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.